0: Hello and welcome to New Books in Eastern European Studies. I'm your host, Hugo Lane, and today I'll be talking to Peter Judson about his book Guardians of the Nation, Activists on the Language Frontier of Imperial Austria, published by Harvard University Press. It's a thought provoking revision of how we understand the, uh, the nationalization of the ethnically mixed countryside. Hello and welcome to New Books in Eastern European Studies. I'm your host, Hugo Lane, and today I'll be talking to Peter Judson about his book, Guardians of the Nation, Activists on the Language Frontier of Imperial Austria, published by Harvard University Press. It's a thought-provoking revision of how we understand the, uh, the nationalization of the ethnically mixed countryside in Austria. It's a pleasure to welcome Peter to New Books in Eastern European Studies. Hello, Peter Judson. How are you doing today?
1: I'm fine, Hugo, and it's a pleasure to be talking to you.
0: Uh, same here. And uh, we're going to be talking to you about your book, Guardians of the Nation, Activists on the Language Frontiers of Imperial Austria Today. Uh, it's a, a fascinating look, and I think it uh, really turns some, uh, of the way we've looked at nationalism upside down. Uh, so uh, first, tell me, how did you get involved in Eastern Europe or East Central Europe in your case?
1: <laughs> well... Uh, bunch of factors. Uh, In graduate school, I started off studying German history, uh, but before graduate school and college, I had always been interested in Eastern Europe, and whenever there was a chance to write a paper about Eastern Europe in a class, I always jumped at the chance. But um, at Columbia University, I ended up studying with Ishan Dayak, who said to me, you know, you can either go into German history and do a really narrow topic or you could go into Habsburg history and do a huge topic because no one else is in the field. And he was right. And I did a topic that was way too big, but it was very exciting. And um, that's what took me into the field.
0: And, you know, and I think you're st- it looks from what I know, you've been working with some of these uh, activists for quite a while uh, on one level <laughs> or another, which is fine. Uh, it's not it's not like you've been uh, uh, g- going back and saying the same things you've been finding very uh, new things about uh, out about them. Uh, so how did this p- particular book yep. uh, come to
1: be? Uh, like most books this book started off being about something very different uh, when I finished the book before uh, and you know how everybody needs to know what your next project is before you've even thought of it uh, I figured well I worked so much on the nationalists at the end of the first book that I will spend some time you know investigating their world I, I was thinking I would write a book about the world of the nationalists Uh Uh, And as I got more deeply into the research, uh, I began to see some more interesting directions I could go in. Number one, I began to see that what the nationalists were talking about was in many ways their own invention. Uh, I kept running up against this contradiction in nationalist writing, discourse, publications, everything. Uh, and the contradiction was that on the one hand, they were always proclaiming their great successes and uh, the battles, and um, they were uh, sort of, how should I put, well, proclaiming their great successes and talking about how... Uh, how the political battles against the other nationals were being won. On the other hand, there's a ton of frustration and victimization rhetoric in nationalism. Uh in all forms of nationalism, and I've yet to find a nationalism that doesn't indulge in victimization uh rhetoric. And so I began to wonder, well if they're doing well, why are they so great? and that was what led me to the insights that produced this book. Where on one level I'm writing about how nationalists are trying to convince uh, everyone to become national, and on the other hand, how they're basically failing.
0: Yes, it, it's uh, quite compelling, and you know, and this is you know, you you're picking up on some things that people have been writing out for a while, but you, uh, it's particularly effective here, perhaps precisely because you treat it as a dual story. Yep. No, uh, and uh, I, you know, this strikes me. These nationalists, their you know, talk about the language frontier, uh, which is, you know, this area for our our, re- our listeners, who uh, the area where um, you have lang different languages, uh, commingling, as it were, people speaking different languages. Um, so, why don't we do talk by and start then by explaining what a language frontier is, a bit more in detail? How did this idea come to be?
1: Mm-hmm. That's a good question because, uh, I would say that the, the appropriate question is how did this idea come to me to, to be? I still don't believe that there is a real place, in the language frontier, but there are certainly a lot of people who believe that it's a real place. Uh, and this was a development primarily in the 1880s. Now, well before then, uh, historians, anthropologists, and demographers had investigated regions where people spoke different languages, and the term language frontier in several languages uh, had developed to characterize what the, the areas they were exploring and investigating. But the concept received a new meaning and a new significance, especially in politics, in, in the 1880s. And it's at that point that nationalists start deciding that the location, the premier site of nationalist conflict, the place where it's really going to make a difference, uh, are these areas where the two languages come up against each other, so to speak. I mean, that's the language they use. Uh, and they're able geographically to plot, these areas in pretty close detail thanks to the results of the first uh, imperial census in the Austrian half of Austria-Hungary in 1880 that is published then in 1881 and subsequent years. So once they have this census data which they claim measures uh, language use or for them national identity, they're then able to see where these alleged frontiers are. Uh, Now, of course, we know that the census didn't actually measure national identification and it it didn't even really measure language use because uh, the census only allowed respondents to uh, claim one language of daily use, not more than one, and several people in these regions were in fact functionally bilingual. so that the nationalists were making a lot of assumptions about these places that had little to do with real life. Nevertheless, they pinpointed these places as being where they should target their resources and their activism. Uh, And because they tended to pinpoint rural regions, and I can return to that in a moment if you want, They added their idea that people in rural regions were less well-educated, less conscious of things like national identity and its importance, and so they had a mission to bring to these regions a sense of nation. Uh, And even this is self-contradictory because in many nationalist writings they write about how in these regions of dual language use uh, the brave uh, speakers of one language have for centuries been holding their own as if the place were a fortress against the attacks of the people who speak the other language. So uh, this is how the idea of the language frontier becomes important politically, how it's really invented but I want to quickly add that one of the elements that was important for me to discover really was that using a language is essentially a functional question in some of these regions that it's not a question about identity it doesn't tell us anything about how people see themselves necessarily it's about their mode of communication that they choose So, this idea of linking language use to fundamental identity is an idea that's imported by nationalist activists. I don't believe that if people speak different languages in a single village, they necessarily see themselves as being part of two different cultures, and in fact, I would add that people speaking different languages in the same village probably have more in common than they do with people speaking the respective languages in other regions.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, I think, a very necessary point to make, uh, and to think about, uh, given what we're, how we've been talking about this for so long. Uh, now, uh, just two questions. What led them to the, to focus on the language frontier rather than other places where, you know, uh, say, uh, lower Austria where everyone uh, is speaking German pretty much, and that they don't need to, is it simply you don't need to worry about them being German? They, uh, and at the same time, uh, they, because everyone is speaking German, they're not conscious, whereas that person on the border, and this is again in the nationalist size, knows because these other people are speaking a different language that he's different.
1: Well, first of all, I should say that, as Jeremy King once said to me uh, very wisely, um, you can never satisfy nationalists. It's never enough. So, you know, they can get everything they want and they're always going to want more. People can never be national enough. So, for example, German nationalists, but this is true of Czech nationalists or Slovene nationalists as well, um, when they're thinking about the say linguistically more homogeneous regions there they're worried that the people who live there don't because they don't interact daily with people who speak other languages uh that they don't um have the kind of commitment to nation that they ought to have so for those people they often frame the language frontier as sort of a heroic site of nationalist battles and those people who are back in the hinterlands ought to understand there's this battle going on and they ought to get involved and mostly they ought to give a lot of money Um, but you're right that for most nationalists the frontier is the, practically speaking, the more interesting place, and the frontier being where the languages mix. Uh, and that's because that's the place where they can show measurable successes or threats and failures every 10 years. Um, that's one big reason. Now, part of your question is interesting from a different angle, which is, why don't they look at cities? Why don't they look at urban areas as uh, these frontiers? And I think that's largely because the nationalization of politics has proceeded so rapidly in urban areas that the rural areas are the areas that seem the most promising for building nationalist, new nationalist uh, believers, and that brings me to another point about the language frontier that uh, some other scholars, I think, have pursued in even more provocative directions, and that is that very often the nationalists are trying to convince uh, nationalists on different sides, say Czech and German nationalists, Slovene and German nationalists. Are are trying to convince the very same people to join their nation as opposed to the other nation. So even as they write about nations as discrete entities, as really existing outside of history, uh, people need to be awakened to their internal national identity, they're actually working very hard to convince people who could go either way uh, that they should join their nation. And there are many more of those people, it seems, in the rural areas. And this has to do also with nationalist presumptions that people in the rural areas are somehow simpler, they're more innocent, uh, but also they're not educated. Uh, so, in some ways, they're an easier target for nationalist activism. Uh, in other ways, they haven't had the opportunity to be uh, awakened to their nationhood yet the way people in cities have. But primarily, I would say that the focus on these regions as opposed to others is because you can then show 10 years later at the next census that you've actually made headway. Uh, you can show it statistically, that you've actually won over, you've nationalized people, you've pushed the enemy back, you know, all of this sort of fortress mentality language that they use can be shown, statistically, Uh, uh that or, in the other direction, you can show that, you know, you need to put more resources into this place because the enemy has been building up and losing out. That, that's... You
0: know, very is so strategic in the way they're talking about it. I I, yeah. I think that uh, one thing that I want to get to here is this issue of modernity on the a very sort of uh, yeah. self-imposed idea of modernity associated with the nation. Um, I I don't want to. I think we'll talk a bit more about that later in more detail. But I mean, it, it's getting to. You are getting to that, and I wanted to talk about one of the areas of modernization, which is the school, which, uh, and, the, and there's an Austrian law, I mean, this is where the state is interesting, playing a role in this whole development, and uh, the Austrian laws of, involving um, minority schooling, which perhaps you can talk about, and then talk about what you describe as the schoolhouse drama that emerges out of that story.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes, I think it's really critical uh, that the state be understood to be an important actor here, even if the state was technically uh, a-national or anti-national even. and By the way, this is, I think, one of the great contributions of Jeremy King's book, that that he shows the state as an important actor. too often, I think we approach nationalism as being, uh, as being, or nationalist movements as being movements that are going to happen anyway because they grow out of the frustrations or the belief or the commitment of people on the ground. Uh, and whereas I think in the Austrian half of Austria-Hungary uh, and in the Hungarian half, but for different reasons, in the Austrian half, uh, the way nationalism is a, develops uh, in part or almost wholly, is as a response to the particular structures that the state builds in the 1840s, 50s, and 60s. Uh, One of the major reforms of the 1860s, uh, after the implementation of the new constitution, or actually almost simultaneously with it, is the creation by the liberals of a new school system funded by the state, supported by the state, uh, which is mandatory uh, for all Austrian youth. Uh, It starts off being uh, eight years of mandatory schooling. And the question, or this then opens several opportunities for nationalist movements because the new constitution has essentially promised to implement equality of language use locally in education and administration and in the judiciary so thanks to those constitutional guarantees i'm calling them guarantees but act the actual wording uh... is a little less um... decisive uh... but in any case that opens a space that guarantee for nationalist activists to come in and say, "Okay, this is promised in the constitution. Now we want to see it on the ground." And education, language use in education, becomes one of the major areas for activism. Now, the original school law, where forty children of school age live within a certain distance of the locality, uh, and each of these localities has to then found a primary school but what language will the school be will the school be taught in that's the next question so nationalists bring some court cases in which then the courts have to decide that if a certain number of students 40 over a 5 year period can be shown to use a language different from the language that the original school was established in there has to be another school a minority school, as it's called, in that second language. This creates all kinds of opportunities for nationalist activists. They rush in and do their best to try to sign up 40 students over a five-year period uh, to demand a school in their language, and then the state will have to pay for it. And this means, in order to accomplish that, that they need to come into the area and they need to found kindergartens, privately funded, that will perhaps train students in the language so that they'll be ready for the new language school. Uh, They then often found a private primary school in the minority language, and if they can prove that over a five-year period there have been 40 students in that school, then they take the next step and force the state to take the school over and make it a public school. So what I've just described is a rather complicated example of how nationalists use some very complex laws passed by uh, the well, laws passed by the Austrian government, uh, inspired by the Constitution, how they use those laws uh, to create a whole system of nationalist minority schools that then the state has to take over and fund. And once the school is now funded by the state, the minority school, then the activists can race off to another village and start the process all over using their resources there. Um, The schools, therefore, become symbols of local nationalist activism. And you mentioned what I call the trope of the schoolhouse drama. So not surprisingly, it's often these private schools. That are then the object of physical or verbal attack by local nationalists. So we have so many stories in the 1880s and 1890s, especially of schoolhouses being allegedly attacked by uh, members of the other nation. And these stories are promulgated by the nationalist activists essentially as a way to raise money for their cause and as a way to raise more money to establish more minority schools. What they want to do is create a sense that they're under attack and that uh, uh, they need help, essentially. What actually happens in the cases of these attacks on the schoolhouses is much less clear Nationalists like to portray all kinds of violence going on, but when you go and look at the actual government uh, accounts by, say, the local gendarmes of what took place, often the incident is much less focused on a nationalist cause, and often it's a lot less violent than the nationalists say it was, and of course, schools are about children. An attack on a school is really an attack on children. And if that doesn't pull your heartstrings and get you to contribute more money to the nationalist cause, then what will?
0: Now, one of the themes or sort of underlying themes of the book, I think, is a a critique of the way historians have tended to accept uh, these stories and take them as, as the sign that, you know, the, the countryside is becoming more national and, uh, it's just getting worse. It's, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. And of course, Austria, Hungary has to collapse. Uh, you know, that's the ultimate, uh, you know, the, the ultimate, uh, end game there for it. Uh, why do you think it's been so hard for, uh,
1: historians to look at this differently for so long? I think it's been very difficult for several reasons. Most importantly, uh, if you look at the very last line of my book, it bas- it, it argues essentially that we're stuck inside a discursive pr- uh, prison that nationalist activists continue to recreate for us. And I believe that that is the case. Secondly, I think that after the fall of communism, uh, it's been very difficult to offer non-nationalist narratives for several of the societies of the states that now make up East Central Europe. In other words, the kind of argument I'm making in my book that, say, then was... provocatively and brilliantly pursued by Tara Zara in her book, Kidnapped Souls, is not an argument that can be openly discussed in many of these states uh, in, among historians there, because it's essentially arguing that the nationalist base for a state or society is not real, uh, is not at all real. Uh, and in here, I think, again, I'm going to cite Jeremy King, Those of us who pursue a constructivist approach to the history of what's called nations still often tend to fall back onto ethnicist presumptions when we're trying to explain how it is that people actually join one nation and not another nation. In other words, we're very willing to see that in the 19th century, nations were constructed, that a lot of people came along, especially historians, and did the work of creating this idea of nationhood. But then when we try to explain why some people join some nations and not other nations, we fall back on old presumptions that are actually quite nationalist in their content, saying, for example, well, if you spoke Czech, of course you joined the Czech nation. If you spoke German, you joined the German nation, etc. Um, and my work and the work of some other people is very pointedly trying to say no, that that link is not the case at all, in two ways. First It's not at all the case that people who spoke one language joined one nation necessarily. I think Gary Cohen already proved that um, long ago, although people at the time didn't realize that that's what his book was proving um, back in the 1980s. Uh, And secondly, we don't – secondly, the idea that somehow everyone did join a nation is also a nationalist invention. I think there's more and more evidence that before the First World War, uh, lots of people were only vaguely connected to nations and only in some situations in their lives. Uh, We've vastly overestimated the importance of nationhood. And again, that's because nationalists have managed to dominate the media uh, and political organization. Uh, That was true in 1914, and it's certainly, unfortunately, true Today,
0: Do you think that, that some of that has to do with how we understand nations? Yes. What I mean is that if we're looking at it from an ethno-national standpoint, yeah, then yes, uh, that's certainly uh, true. But what if we look at it and say, maybe uh, if we understand nation as a synonym for citizenship... Mm -hmm. to to an extent that these people who were might be considered a national were in fact modernizing here we come back to that and becoming part of this new modern political identity of being part of Austria that we can also call nationalism and and, you know uh, or part of the new nation uh, a national structure it might be supranational even but it's still a kind of collective understanding that we are the people
1: Yes. Uh, I think you're absolutely right about the creation of that uh, collective understanding. I think that is mostly a product of modernity, modernization, uh, an understanding of commonality. And let's face it, all of these people that we think about belonging to separate so-called nations – actually lived under common institutions, common legal institutions, common judicial institutions, common educational institutions, and that gave them much more in common than it separated them. Uh, So in that sense, absolutely, I would argue that... uh, A common citizenship is a remarkably important factor in the creation of a common sense of self, a sense of, I would say, identification, uh, rather than identity, because I think identification, uh, the word shows that it's an active process, not a passive process. Um, But yes, I agree with you there. But I would also add that... However, we're looking at the concept of nationhood, whether in a more citizenship defined way or an ethnically defined way, that we should keep in mind that it's contingent in the sense that it kicks in sometimes and it doesn't kick in other times. Uh, which is my way of paraphrasing some of Rogers Brubaker's work uh, about nationhood. In other words, that it's, there are some situations in which nations happen, in which you feel yourself to be part of a nation, and there are other situations where you don't. Uh, we have to keep that in mind, that it's a constant process. It's a constant remaking. It's not something that's simply there and exists kind of outside of history or development. So there, I've taken you away from your question about modernity, but we can certainly come back to that.
0: Well, no, I, it, that is a you know, it, it's a key point where, where we talk about what's contingent. I will, I'll leave that for a later discussion uh, because I think it, it takes us away. I want to return to some of these other tropes and the way the nationalists <laughs> are using because that's ultimate. We are ultimately coming back to them, and uh, the you know, we talked about the schoolhouse. Now, one of yep. the other um uh, section of your book is devoted uh to co- uh colonization that is or or perhaps even recolonization remaking things in this case german uh down in the southern uh areas of austria yep. and well if you could talk about that uh,
1: That, I have to say, I I had, I derived great, great pleasure from writing about that. Somehow that was so exciting to me. And one of the things I enjoyed immensely about writing this book is that it allowed me to talk about very specific small places and to link the sense of place and those places to larger themes about, say, nationalism and political conflict. So what you're talking about is the attempt by the uh, German nationalist organization Sudmark to literally colonize a region uh, a region around the city of uh, today Maribor at the time also known as Marburg uh, which was essentially a Slovene-speaking region with uh, a German-speaking city Marburg or Maribor and their attempt to bring in German-speaking farmers who would create what they referred to as kind of a land uh, a geographic bridge from Marburg stretching up to the more homogeneously german speaking regions uh of the north uh north of the moor river so um <clears throat> that that was so crazy i mean i couldn't believe <laughs> But it was true that this organization had not only attempted to bring in colonists to change the demographic makeup of the region, which is, if you think about it, an extraordinarily expensive undertaking but that they had also then publicized this attempt to show how successful they were in changing the demographic makeup and made it, as I refer to it in some places, as a kind of theme park of nationhood. In other words, they then would invite visitors to come and see these German colonists and these villages, especially the village of uh, Chantille or St. Egidie in German, uh, which is today between the border of Slovenia and Maribor uh, on the train line. Um, so the colonization attempts assumed that you could bring in so-called Germans, plant them down in a essentially region where there's a lot of Slovene speakers, and that they would be German nationalists. But of course, when I investigated more closely, it turned out that almost the opposite had happened, that a lot of the first colonists brought in had really come in because they wanted some inexpensive land. They wanted the subsidy that they would get from the Sudmark. Uh, Often, though, once they were established, they would kind of join in the local social life, which you would expect. They would go to church in the Slovene-speaking church, and gradually, some of them became Slovene, much to the anger and frustration of Sudmark. So then the Sudmark decided, if we're going to bring in colonists, we have to make absolutely sure of their German credentials, which is almost impossible. And then one other way of making sure that they wouldn't socialize was to make sure that the colonists were Protestants instead of being Catholics. The region was ninety nine percent Catholic already, and then they were able to create a community of people who kept themselves somewhat apart from the other people in the region, largely because of their Protestantism, not because of their Germanness. Now, this whole effort was advertised all over the place. It was. It was. Uh, seen as comparable to the efforts of Frederick the Great to bring in Germans to Polish-speaking areas in Prus- East Prussia. Uh, it was seen as a great success by a voluntary association to change the demography of Austria. But when I went and looked at the actual census statistics, what I learned was actually a bit disheartening for the German nationalists. It was that, in fact, the Slovene-speaking uh, population of the region of the particular villages where they brought in the colonists actually grew percent wise during the period of colonization. That fact had never been reported by anyone. The idea of colonization had always been taken for granted as being successful, uh, as an example of Germanization efforts, as an example that this kind of thing was possible. So it fascinated me that this colonization, this settlement area worked in terms of PR, but utterly failed in terms of demography. And it's the PR that we historians evidently seem to remember. And the PR is hilarious. I mean, they would bring people in and have them look at these Germans, have them uh, meet with them uh, at pubs and listen to their experiences. And it was all about raising money for the Sudmark and its activities, essentially.
0: Uh, I was just thinking about it. My first... Con, um, contact with this Marburg was uh, yeah. my first research paper on Galicia. It was about Galician German nationals more generally, sort of East uh, nationalist efforts on the, the further eastern extremes. Uh, I spent a lot of time with Raimund Friedrich Kindl. Have you? Uh, oh, yeah. he, did, did you? Did, he, did you come across him in your work at all?
1: I came across him as a figure, but I have to say I didn't read by him um but i quickly want to add that one of the best parts of doing that research was the number of novels that were written for example about this region uh that um, and they weren't even written by Sudmark activists, but somehow because of the focus on this region, there are a bunch of German nationalists who write these exquisite novels about the struggle, the nationalist struggle on the language frontier. And that too, uh, was, I have to say, I really got taken by that. Um, but kind of, as I recall, doesn't he end up in Bukovina? Well, he, he didn't end up. He, he was born in Bukovina. Yeah. yeah I spent basically his whole
0: life there until nineteen eighteen or so. Oh, right, right. And yeah. uh, then ends up in Graz.
1: In Graz, yeah. John
0: lives there till nineteen thirty. Um I read most I think I read most everything he read, except for his novel, <laughs> uh the um uh, Tochter, which is about a. Uh, 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 I think it's a Roman aus Krakow's Deutscher
1: Zeit. (laughs) Oh, fabulous. As,
0: As far as I know, the only copy in the United
1: States is in the Library of Congress. Oh, which site was that, by the way? Is the question I always want to ask.
0: <laughs> I, I assume in this case it's Medieval Times, but I, I say I've never read it, so I can't give you. Uh, oh, a, I oh. can't give you a report on it because it's the one thing I haven't read. I I think I still have stacked away someplace, you know, xeroxes of you know, his three volume history of uh, the Germans of the Carpathian Lands, oh, and oh, uh, oh, then yeah. other books. There's a little sh- uh, short. Um, piece in, uh, our, put together in 1926 called, yeah. in which is fairly well available and, and it, it gives a good flavor of where he's coming from. Yeah. Um, but he, you know, he, uh, uh very much, he's, he's, of course, very fervent in the idea. He's not, I suppose, in some of the ways that these nationalists thought he's a pro, very much a pro Austrian, uh, yeah. Uh, idea, and he doesn't have a problem exactly with other nations. He just thinks that they all have to learn from the Germans.
1: Uh, That's a good... But listen, that is exactly the attitude that you get in so many of these novels. Like this Rudolf Hans Barch, who wrote um the Deutsche Leid, which is my absolute favorite because it actually has scenes that take place in the village of Zangtekidi. Um, but I love that book, but that book is not at all anti Slovene in a sense. It's just that it's anti politics. It views nationalism as a product of a bunch of manipulating Slavic politicians who are taking the good-hearted peasants and sort of pushing them in the wrong direction uh, and making them respect German culture less. Because before they had respected German culture and, and lived with it and probably aspired to it. Uh, and now of course a bunch of Slovene, educated Slovene lawyers who, he says, all went to German schools now, uh, are trying to develop this Slovene nationalism as if Slovene were a comparable culture. I mean, it's really, I love these books, they're just really awful in, in great ways, though. Because also they have to pay attention to the local, mm-hmm. you know, they can't be persuasive. Uh, if these guys can't write about the local, they can't persuade anyone of, the, of how correct their interpretation is. And I like that, because you learn something too about the local in these novels.
0: No, it, 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 sounds, you know, it does sound, oh, I remember the descriptions and that, you know, that you read about. I enjoyed that part of your book as well. <laughs> I want to say I, I, it made was, me all oh, the more <laughs> eager to have gotten hold of, uh, the, folks uh, and I may well, if I can ever get a research or get money again, make that an effort, you know, uh, you know, cause I, you know, when I, this is funny. When I was doing that research, I came yeah. across this wall myself of, it was quite clear that these Galician, what little information I could actually get about Galician German mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, colonies, these are colonists who were sent there in the uh, you know, end of the 18th century, yeah. were a national. And they, you know, they were being yeah. roped into somebody's outside stri- uh, 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 efforts to nationalize them in the beginning of the 20th century. But they yep. weren't, it was clear, and I just, I did not have the um, distance yet, and the knowledge to be able to grapple with that.
1: Um, uh, if I could just say, Hugo, that was exactly the starting point I had with, with this book. In other words, that as I began the research, oh, and by the way, um, reading through every Deutsche Schulverein Mitteilung ever written, uh, there are tons of little articles about, uh, German speaking communities in Galicia and the tragedy of the German speaking schools being closed here and there. Um, but I too, uh, couldn't distance myself from the, Obvious, normal, natural explanation being given that, you know, these are Germans in the middle of Poles. Um, and the sort of nationalist presumption of that, oh, and talk about, you know, I mean, the whole nationalist understanding of what the so-called colonization of the 18th century meant. You know that it was about bringing civilization, or uh, about bringing Germanness, rather than about bringing certain kinds of approaches to business or farming or trying to people areas that had been depopulated. Um, it's it's very very interesting.
0: Did you, by the way, did you come across any, uh, say, anthropological studies that would set up the uh, the difference between a Slovene farmhouse? and <laughs> messy and versus the clean german well ordered and i want and i also wonder how much of this yeah. slavic this notion that slavs are um are, are sloppy yeah is comes out of a, a particular view not of all slavs but starts with the poles and the, yes. the, the Wirtschaft is the uh, yep. you know of course yep. it con- continues to be used occasionally, although I think that's fallen by the wayside under the new circumstances since nineteen eighty nine and uh, european uh, and the european union but uh you know it seems to me that Galicia plays a, a a weird role in shaping mm. what develops and why, for example. There is even this Slovene-German tension in the notes. The, the, the natural order of things that these national, these writers, these novelists are writing about was probably pretty imaginable uh, if it had not been for the, the experiences in Galicia. And they are coming into this Polish uh, territory, Polish-dominated territory, uh, with an elite that, although they were quite willing to be Austrian, uh was not ready to give up their language uh as the language of progress, as what we say. Yeah. That it was it always they always saw it as an equal of German.
1: So I think that, okay, a couple of things. Um, the most persuasive account I've read about how the concept of Polnische Wirtschaft, for example, is transformed because its original meaning in the early 19th century is a bit different from the later kind of blanket anti-Pol or anti-Slav meaning is in a book by Thomas Serrier or Serrier, I'm not sure he is French, uh, about um, the region around Posen in the 19th century and the nationalist conflicts there. Um, with regard to Galicia, and you'll know much more than I do, the sense I have is that, of course, all of these tropes are important very early on to establish the legitimacy of Habsburg rule there uh, in the 1770s, 1780s, You know the whole imagination of Galicia that Larry Wolf has written about a bit as kind of a blank slate that has to be filled because there was complete disorder there. Um, And while I think, I mean, you're absolutely right about the elite and its willingness to work with the Austrian regime, I think that these cultural tropes become important in the 19th century when it's clear that the Josephinist project of the late 18th century is not going to happen is basically failing all over the place. And why is it failing? Well, it's not failing because the Austrians aren't talented. It's failing because of the poles. I mean, that's my particular reading following Larry Wolf and some other people on that. So that the cultural idea, it has to become about culture rather than just politics or class or society. <laughs> um, there has to be something deeper in Galicia that's preventing the Austrians from succeeding
0: Yeah, Larry Uh, does a good job with that uh, with uh, Zahra Masoch in particular I think yeah uh, because it it is an issue that comes up and it it sort of creeps in in if you look at um, uh, really should be getting back to your book uh, (laughs) you you see that the um, you know it was it was a gradual discovery that hey these German is not naturally a language that everyone adopts uh, right. it, was, it came as, as a shock and they kept on in it and believing in it and it gets and the longer they believed in it the bigger a shock it became when uh, people were not doing it
1: um, I'll get back if you want to the messy Slavic farms for a moment or we're sure. not. Um, just to quickly say that I actually agree with you that I think that the well, – if we want to even say the trope of Galicia is very important for then uh, – being projected onto other places where Germans and Slavs come up against each other, according to nationalists. Now, in Bohemia, it's a really tough argument to make because, of course, in some ways, Czech nationalists portray themselves as the modern civilized nation as opposed to the Germans who aren't civilized. <laughs> and, and I don't, I never found anything about sort of, uh, that. Uh, quality of, like, you can tell the difference between Czech farms and German farms uh, because one is s- slovenly and sloppy. I never found that in Bohemia, but in South Styria, that did become a trope. But then when you read somebody like Barch, who's from the region and who writes a novel about nationalism there, he doesn't indulge in it either because for him, the Slovene speakers are innocent and they are actually the hard, They work hard for the Germans who employ them when they're innocent and not when they're being nationalists. Uh, so there's a sense of like Slavs could be hard workers and have nice farms. Um, it's just that they've been uh, sort of pulled in the wrong direction. But then when the Sudmark comes in, They are the ones who characterize the Slavic farms as being uh, so problematic, and partly that's again has to do with the failures they encountered in their settlement, uh, campaign. Because they claimed that you couldn't simply buy a Slavic farm and give it to a German to run. You first had to clean it. You first had to rebuild it. Uh, and also that Slavic farms were too small and you had to buy two for every one German, co- you know, the kind of thing the Nazis did in, in Poland in, in the early forties. Um, and I think it's more a product of the Sudmark activists who are thinking in a pan-Austrian way more than the local people, the local nationalists are. So I completely agree with you. There's, we'll say, there's something about Galicia.
0: <laughs> now, you mentioned Bohemia and the difference between them. I'm one of the differences, uh, and that's an interesting note about Czech farms, this, you know, lack of, but <laughs> yeah. and that's really important. That's, uh, it always reminds us how different Bohemia and the relations between historically have been between the people, uh, which gets back to really a point of your book. But also, I was struck by Tolerini. We think of of German nationalism as sort of, uh, inexorably heading towards anti-Semitism.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: Uh, and here again in Bohemia, quite the opposite uh, takes place. And I mean, I think we know why in part because the Czechs are competing with them. who can, Who can keep the, the Jews on their side? Who can bring them to their side? That it's not simply uh, a German. It's not simply uh, the, uh, the Germans who are friendly to Czech, uh, to Jewish culture.
1: Yeah. I agree. Um, and I would quickly add um, – I want to quickly add just to provoke a little that German nationalism and Czech nationalism are in some ways very similar. They develop in tension with each other. They copy each other constantly in terms of strategies, in terms of rhetorical flourishes, and both, and this is really crucial, cast themselves as victims of the other. And when you cast yourself as a victim of the other, the other has to have some power. So, uh even though they oppose each other, they constantly imagine that the other is somehow unfairly more powerful than they are. Okay, having said that, it's really amazing to me that we today consider that anti-Semitism is a constitutive part of German nationalism uh, in the 1880s, 1890s, 1900 period. Uh, and Bohemia is an excellent example uh where that just didn't work. Uh, there is a... German nationalist anti-Semitic organization, the Bund der Deutschen, and there are, there's plenty of anti-Semitism in Czech nationalist organizations, but the main, the biggest German nationalist organizations, uh, the Deutsche Schulverein and then the Burmerwald Bund that I talk a lot about in southern Bohemia, are not anti-Semitic, and in fact, each organization has prominently uh got Jews who are in the leadership positions. And in fact, if I ever if I live long enough, one of the things I wanted to do was to write a short biographical sketch of one of these, uh Israel Cone from Bujewice, who was very important in the Deutsche Burmawaldbund from its founding until the First World War. Uh, and this is a problem. This we you know this means we have to understand nationalism a little bit differently than we have before. We have to see how they dealt with anti-Semitism, and it's not simple here. Uh, the organizations that that welcomed the Jews, nevertheless, were pretty careful not to publicize their welcoming of Jews too much. They didn't want to uh, annoy the anti-Semites, but at the same time, they had to hold on to the loyalty of their Jewish members. Uh, so... It's not the situation we think of. But let's face it. I mean, when people think of the Habsburg monarchy who don't know much about it and they think of German nationalism, they think of schönerer because they think of Hitler. Uh, and most German nationalists were not that kind of insane uh and insanely anti-Semitic uh, activists. They didn't put, they didn't represent that kind of ideology that scherner did. And one other point that's crucial to remember is that there are so many different kinds and variations in, of anti-Semitism itself. And we shouldn't just imagine that anybody who's portraying an anti-Semitic position is racially anti-Semitic, which I think we often do. Not that I want to defend the other kinds. In, in a sense, what I want to say is that religious antisemitism is just so much more typical for the region and for the age, that we should expect to find that. Uh, but in the Schulverein and the Bömerwaldbund, both of which were founded way back by liberals, uh, antisemitism was always rejected uh, until the First World War, and the Bömerwaldbund that survived into the 20s and 30s also remained. Uh, friendly to Jews. And in fact, when the Nazis took over Budweis or Budjewitz uh, in 1938, one of the first things they did was destroy a small monument to the founder of the Deutsche Burmewaldbund uh, because it was perceived as being uh, friendly to Jews.
0: We have one last time for one last question about the book, and I want to take you to it. You mentioned the liberal agenda, and one of the arguments I was struck by in your book is you uh, argue that, in a sense, the nationalist front uh, focus on the language frontier was part of a reshaping of nationalism as it connect, uh, and its connection to the liberal agenda, which had a clear division between public and private spheres, and you're yeah. arguing that this new nationalism or this new, the, the direction it's going uh, is really trying to break down those barriers, if I understood it correctly.
1: Yes. national activists work, activists work very hard to break down the more traditional uh, barriers between public and private. And the reason for that is, in my opinion, the mass mobilization in public life that's taking place already starting in the 1870s and 1880s, but really taking off at the turn of the century. In other words, uh, private life becomes sort of fair game for politics in ways that it hadn't been uh, under the liberals. Um, activists who wanted to get support in elections, who wanted financial support, who wanted to mobilize people into their movements, uh, had to accept that the masses were now going to be part of things and that's not something liberals had accepted very easily so one of my arguments is that the new activists looked at things like all kinds of private forms of behaviors, particularly consumption, uh, as potential strategic areas where they could increase their effectiveness. So lots of uh, boycotts, economic campaigns, uh, women should shop in certain places, but also things like tourism. You know, when you make personal choices for your family, where are we going on vacation, you should do that with an eye towards uh, nationalism. So I have a chapter on tourism, for example, and the nationalist attempt to mobilize people uh, through tourism for the nationalist cause. And basically, I see these all these things as product of mass mobilization uh, that was developing electorally but also in other parts of other parts of society during this period that you know competition meant that you had to keep looking for new ways to mobilize people new aspects of life that you could nationalize and that meant that the border between public and private was going to collapse I don't know if that answers your
0: no I think it's I think it's an important point that we are it's it's, it's- Part of modernity, and the fact, yep. in fact, for us all that the liberals had a hard time with, I think, you know, and I mean, <laughs> to this to this sure. day, yeah. we still have. I mean, it's, it's not that we there. We still are drawn to that. I think that a certain belief that there's a division, but at the same time, we constantly are act in a way that's very different from that.
1: I uh, think you're absolutely right, and that's what we're seeing here in the 1890s, in particular. Uh, just a whole new vision of what, uh, politics could be. But I also agree with you that for a lot of people, it's not, you know, it, it's, it's not what they want and the liberal idea doesn't go away. Uh, it's it remains with us. And then a lot of people mobilize the private, but claim they're only, you know, that they're still maintaining that distinction. So,
0: yeah, no, it's stuck with us, uh, which yep. it, it testifies to the wisdom of your earlier book about uh, liberalism. I mean, the, how much liberalism stays with us is very important, despite all these changes. Yep. Um, well, this has been wonderful to talk to you about the book uh, and it makes me excited to know what you're working on now.
1: Well, I haven't, I didn't even get to mention indifference to nation, which is another product of this book. Uh, But what I'm working on now, uh, I backed into by mistake, but now I'm excited about it. And that is I'm trying to write a history of Habsburg, Central Europe from about the 1770s until the 1930s, in which the nation does not appear as a subject, and in which I can try to develop narratives for all of us to use that are not organized around fundamentally nationalist concepts. So I'm looking at the institutions, the cultural practices that held people together in this region that they shared in common, rather than the things that later came to separate them. Uh, And the other part of that project is that I'm trying to tack back and forth between the creation of these big imperial institutions that everybody shares, on the one hand, that sort of state building, and how people at the most local levels in your Galician villages, let's say, engaged with those common institutions, because I do think there are enormous differences and variations in all the regions of the empire, and I don't want to just write a book about state building, I want to write a book about uh the local as well as the international so that's why the project is currently called Everyday Empire Sounds and it's interesting. supposed to be finished soon and there's a press that's waiting for it but um it won't be finished soon cuz it's too big
0: <laughs> um and what about you know one of the audiences that I hope tunes into this are uh, people younger people who are uh get the history bug and get interested in Eastern Europe and uh, what recommendations do you have for them uh, as uh, things to be doing to prepare themselves
1: okay Uh, I noticed that you were going to ask me this question and I came up with a very counterintuitive answer and my answer is read French history (laughs) and the reason I say that is that we have to stop seeing eastern europe as eastern europe we have to see it as europe and one of the reasons that i felt that i was able to come to a critical approach to the regions and the peoples i was looking at was because in graduate school i studied a lot of french history <laughs> now i you don't have to study french history you could study other forms of history but my i guess my advice is not to reinforce a sort of ghettoized notion of Eastern Europe as a distinctive place. We've had too many decades or even centuries of that, and even though it is possible that Eastern Europe is somewhat distinctive, I I really feel that we need to be working in the other direction and to really work much harder to Europeanize what is known as Eastern Europe or Central Europe now, so that's my advice.
0: I would have to say amen to that. (laughs) And, um, well, Peter, uh, it's been a pleasure chatting with you and I do wish you the best of luck finishing that book. And, uh, so I look forward to being able to talk to you about that. And thank uh, you. um, And so, uh, we'll wish you goodbye so you can get on with that and uh, have a wonderful day.
1: Thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking to you.
0: This has been a talk with Peter Judson about his book, Guardians of the Nation, published by Harvard University Press. I'm your host, Hugo Lane. Thank you for joining us. And I'm hoping you'll join me again when I speak to another author. I'm New Books and Eastern European Studies. Bye-bye.